When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the England Show from The Athletic. Coming up today, we preview England against Scotland at Euro 2020 in the company of Lindsay Hooper and David Ornstein and Jack Pitt Brook. Here's Harry Kane! What a finish! We know what it means as, as players to, to represent England and, and when you're playing a home nation like Scotland, we know what that entails with the fans and we are trying to use that and, and take them them feelings into the game and, and try and use that to, to our advantage. But all in all, it's, it's about us performing on the pitch and it's going to be a, a fantastic game, of course. Let me start with you, Jack, uh, because the, we're recording this on a Thursday. The news overnight is that Harry Maguire has declared himself fit. Does that automatically mean he comes back in? The Mings and Stones partnership worked so well against Croatia that I think Gareth Southgate would be reluctant to change it that quickly. I'm sure he'll be thinking that if they can beat Scotland, then the Czech Republic game, there's a bit less pressure in the Czech Republic game, he might be able to bring in players like Henderson and Maguire. But given that Maguire hasn't played for what's... I think he did his injury on the 9th or 10th of May. Yeah. So coming up to seven weeks. Uh, I don't think it would necessarily make sense to throw him straight back into what could be a pretty difficult game at Wembley this this Friday night. David? There doesn't seem to be a reason to bring him back in other than if there had been a problem in the first game with Mings or Stones, if Maguire was absolutely fully fit and flying in training. That phrase, why change a winning formula, um, especially in a game that's going to be so intense, it, it's more likely that Harry Maguire could get a real testing and, and potentially something could go wrong than some breeze like a, a dead rubber that England may have uh, against the Czech Republic in their final game. I do think, and I think it's been mentioned in one of our pods previously, that if Maguire is going to play in the knockout stages, he needs to play in the group stages. You can't just come into the team with so much at stake. And so hopefully uh, that would be the last game. From what I'm hearing, it's no guarantee that he would even start the third game. But that's obviously the one that all being well for England, that he would get some minutes in. But I definitely see Mings starting alongside uh, Stones in this Scotland game. And I think that's the right decision. I think that's what this is all about from Maguire's point of view is that final game. I think he's declared this. I'm fully fit. Don't you get too used to having <laughs> Mings and Stones playing alongside each other? He can see that that worked. I'm sure he's expecting them to start against Scotland because of all the reasons that you said as well and, and not being entirely match fit, I, I imagine. But what he's doing is he's laying down his marker to Gareth Southgate, isn't mm -hmm. he? And he's saying, don't get too comfortable with that centre-back pairing because I'm here. And I think fully fit and at it, Maguire and Stones are the better partnership. So so maybe for, for England fans, this is a really good thing that we've now got options. But then, Lindsay, there are, there are other knock-ons if you, if you replace Mings with Maguire, for, for whatever game that might be, because so much was made pre-match 
and post-match about Kieran Trippier's selection being so much about experience and leadership and being able to communicate to Tyrone Mings all the way through that game. And, and Mings and Trippier both spoke about it in, in interviews post-match. So by bringing Maguire back, if you're following Gareth Southgate's logic, it then opens up other options at left-back. It does. And I think we're underestimating Kieran Trippier and how high up the pecking order he was already. I honestly think for this game that he'll revert to right-back. I think it's Carl Walker that's more in in damage and in jeopardy of not playing in this game because there were moments, certainly at the beginning of of the game against Croatia, where I thought that Walker was a bit nervy. Now, I know he settled into the game, but I don't think you can have that against the Scots. I really don't. So I think Trippier will move across. And and I think it will be a natural fit for, for him to be back in his normal position with Shaw or Chilwell on the left. There's definite logic in that. And yeah, Carl Walker's first half performance wasn't his normal high standard. I thought he was pretty good in the second. The only thing, Jack, from experience of of watching Southgate for so long now, how comfortable would he be with making that much change for such an important game? That That's quite a fundamental shift to a, a backline that has kept a clean sheet and really impressed against top level opposition in the opener. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think our... I- I think our assumption has to be he won't make changes unless he has to. You know, I remember at the 2018 World Cup, I think the only changes he made were enforced by injury, except for the, the mass changes he made for the Belgium dead rubber game in Kaliningrad. But generally, if it's a you know a normal competitive game within a tournament, Southgate would want fewer changes rather than more. Maybe he'll eventually bring in Maguire. Maybe he'll bring in a specialist left back. But I wouldn't expect to see a very different team uh, for the next game than from the team we saw against Croatia. But are we going down the route here, Jack, of saying that Gareth Southgate is a predictable beast? Because I don't think any of us called the Trippier move last time out. And uh, and surely rotation, you look at the, the depth of squad and it's it's a luxury we've not had for a very long time. Surely there is going to be rotation, more rotation than we've seen before. Yeah, I think so. And to be fair, Southgate has did say before the tournament that there, you know, there would be changes through the course of it. But I, my assumption's always been just that he won't want to do too much to disrupt the flow of the team, and particularly after such a strong performance in that, in that first game. Now, we're recording this uh, before Gareth Southgate's pre-match uh, press conference, but uh, Jack, you're going to send the producer a note uh, of what, uh, a voice note in technology, not like something handscribed and delivered by pigeon. Voice note of what he says... Uh, and our producer will drop it right in here. So I was just on the Harry Kane and Gareth Southgate press conference, which took place electronically, as always nowadays. Um, The big news really was Gareth Southgate saying that Harry Maguire will be involved tomorrow, having missed the Croatia game through injury. Um, Southgate said that he has not decided yet whether Maguire would would be ready to start or not, but said that Maguire has trained with him for the last four or five days and has had no reaction to that. Beyond that news, uh, the main line in the press conference was just discussing the importance of the game and how much it meant to the players. Harry Kane talked about playing against Scotland in the past uh, and how scoring against Scotland at Hampton Park was one of his favourite ever England goals. Gareth Southgate took a slightly different view, just saying that Ultimately, although it is a big occasion, really, they have just got to focus on the game itself, how to beat Scotland, what Scotland do well, 
Um, and he also made the point, Southgate, that some of the younger players he thinks have a slightly different view of the England-Scotland relationship than players of Southgate's age would have done. Um, because you know the Home Nations tournament is not such a big thing anymore. Those games are not on TV. So it's maybe not quite as significant now, that rivalry, as it would have been in the past. We've talked about his selections and, and whether he'll, you know, stick or twist. Do you think his approach will be the same? Because, David, you, I mean, you can pick the same players and instruct them to play in a, in a different way. Do you think they will be more on the front foot against Scotland? That's not typically Southgate's way. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful manner. He's shown us to be a sort of defence first coach slightly more conservative. And I, I'm pleased about that, getting your sort of house in order before being more expansive. And England have such talented attackers that I, I don't know that you need to suddenly tell them to place the emphasis in, in a completely different way. I do appreciate that the fullbacks seem in the first game to be very purposefully held back. Part of the reason Trippier was picked and also Carl Walker didn't attack at his normal level. In fact, one of the only times I can remember Carl Walker bombing with sort of carefree abandon was straight after the goal, after the restart. And and Croatia were in England's faces and Carl Walker came flying down the wing, but he was pretty restrained other than that. Sort of answering your question on selection and approach, I do think sort of similar to what Lindsay says, that Trippier was picked to do a specific job on a specific team. And I'm not sure in normal circumstances that that would have happened with two recognised and very successful this season anyway, left backs at, at his disposal. And I don't know what threat Scotland specifically pose to an England left back that would mean you wouldn't pick a natural left back in this game. And that makes me think, yeah, there, there, there may be a bit of selection alteration. But in, in terms of the approach, now I don't see them suddenly bombing forward and throwing out of the window um, a game plan that was, was pretty effective and successful against better opposition than Scotland. And what they cannot do is get wrapped up in, in the hype of this. An eight o'clock kickoff at Wembley, against Scotland, the first time the two teams have met in a major competition for so many years, Scotland will be throwing absolutely everything at England, playing on emotion, on atmosphere, nothing to lose in a way. And I think it would be naive of England to start playing a different tactical approach when they don't really need to. That said, one of my main takeaways from the Croatia game was just how aggressive England were, particularly without the ball in that first 25 minutes. Like They really threw the kitchen sink at Croatia, obviously, mm -hmm. Foden hit the post, Phillips had that shot saved from distance, and it looked as if England were trying to get ahead early on. And obviously, it didn't happen that way, and they had to step back for the second half of the first half, and then eventually the goal came later on. But given that it won't, you know, this is an evening game, it's not going to be so hot, I, want, I just wonder whether England might go all out in the first 30 minutes, try and get ahead, and then sit back. Because I, I think that my sense is that, and I might be wrong, is that Scotland will actually start on the back foot and try and keep things tight early on. So may, maybe England will go for it in the first half. When it comes to approach, one of the takeaways I thought was potentially trying to work Kane into this game more. I thought Harry Kane was fairly quiet in comparison to other matches. He obviously was pulling quite deep, wasn't he, to come and collect balls. And it was actually Sterling that was the, the more advanced attacker at most occasions. I wonder if there's been any of that, Jack, in training this week, wanting to get more from, from Harry Kane and, and what he's there to do, which is score goals. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Why, why didn't Harry Kane look himself against Croatia? Because I didn't think he really looked, he looked like classic Kane at all. I wonder whether it's because he's playing a different team. I think he was playing as a bit more of a sort of fixed number nine 
for England than he normally does for Tottenham. There was that one moment in the second half where he kind of pulled about 30 yards out from goal and then tried to play a pass to Sterling, which was intercepted by a defender just before Sterling did score. And obviously then he collided with the post later on, going for that chance at the far post. But I, I, yeah, I was wondering, why, why doesn't he look himself? Is it just a case of feeling his way into the tournament? Has he come in a little bit undercooked? I mean, he didn't finish the season especially well, given how well he played beforehand. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how whether Kane does drop back and play that more kind of the version of Kane we've seen in the last year or two, or whether he kind of continues to play up as a number nine and then uh, let the chances come to him. Was there not a similar um, narrative in the 2018 World Cup? I I was there and I don't remember Kane having a prolific start. It was sort of group games where you're bedding in, England were doing well, other players were scoring, but he then got on the score sheet as the tournament went on. He showed what a serious player he was, the pressure of penalties, etc. And I don't think he had an outstanding landmark tournament, but he still contributed quite heavily and, and maybe he is a grower. Yeah, I remember thinking he'd never look, he never really looked fit at the 2018 World Cup, which is amazing because he won the Golden Boot. And obviously he did, you know, he started well in terms of goals in the sense that he got this, what, two against Tunisia and then I think three against Panama in the second game. But he wasn't, uh, like, I didn't feel like he was physically at his absolute peak. It was more just to do with efficiency, being in the right place and incredible ruthlessness in front of goal. So maybe, maybe that's the kind of tournament that, that we'll see him have in the end. But it's a bit of an open question at this point. The one thing that, sort of contradicting my first point, Lindsay, about England not needing to play in a specifically different way. But do you think with the context of the game and all that it stands for, uh, the opposition, that they'll look to impose themselves with a bit more of a swagger, a dominance, a bit less respect in possession that you might have seen them showing towards Croatia? Yeah, I think after watching the performance of Scotland against Czech Republic, I think that will have changed a few things, actually. Any conservatism that might have been expected at the beginning stages, I think they just throw throw out the window. I think you just go for this. You try and put them under pressure. It is Scotland that have got to get something from this game. So take the game to them. And I, I don't think that they're too much to fear on the counter-attack. I stand by what I said pre-tournament about Scotland, which is as much as I think they've got rafts of talent in midfield, I do not think that they've got many natural finishers. And, and I don't think Lyndon Dykes is, is going to be getting on the end of too many chances. So let them go. But but let let's just outscore. I mean, I know that that's not Gareth Southgate's way, and he'll he'll want to certainly make sure that we we have a good defensive performance. But for that first I, first twenty thirty minutes, you might as well try and get a two goal cushion or something, and then go from there. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Let's hear from Tom Warville because he's the football analytics writer at The Athletic. It is well worth reading. 
uh, his stuff on the site. Uh, here's his take on England and Scotland so far at Euro 2020 and the numbers to look out for ahead of Friday's game. England's performance against Croatia was pretty controlled, I think, and it wasn't really the, the free-flowing attacking football that, that many people probably want to see, given the level of attacking talent in the squad. So, I mean, England had 27% of their possessions reached the final third against Croatia, which is actually the sixth lowest uh, of all teams at Euro 2020 so far. And I think a big reason for that is because I think the Croatians were, were pretty well set up. But also England were just very slow to move the ball upfield. I don't think they build they build out from the back particularly quickly. Um, and in fact, when we look at the speed at which they move from the back to the front and how quickly they move the ball upfield, they're the second slowest team so far that we've seen in the Euros as well. 50% of their shots so far uh, in this tournament, so that's, that's four of their, their eight, if we're putting it in proper numbers, have come from set pieces. Uh, and of course, this, you know, England in 2018 were, were absolutely a set piece side. They scored nine goals, uh, which is the most in the World Cup since 1966. So, um, again, something to look out for. It, set pieces really defined England at the World Cup, but didn't quite, you know, they haven't quite been a good source of goals or chances so far in this tournament, but definitely something to, to look out for and maybe they'll score from. Quickly onto Scotland, 21 crosses in total. Um, and going through them, you see they'll really cross them anywhere. They'll cross them deep, they'll cross in the byline, they, they're getting in set pieces. So not just winning the first contacts are important for the Scots, but also getting the second balls as well. Andy Robertson created six chances. Stephen O'Donnell created one, Robertson had 10 crosses, O'Donnell had two. So I think we can see clearly that there's a big left side bias there for Scotland. Scotland do play back three, and I think that although they largely dominated the game, despite the Czechs going ahead, um, the Czechs still received 11 passes in Scotland's box, which is more than England received in Croatia's box uh, last week. So I think that, that goes to show that it is fairly easy to get in behind Scotland at times. I don't think they are blessed with too much pace, um, although if Kieran Trippier does play over Liam Cooper, that could change. But yeah, I think that does show that having the outlets in terms of Foden or, or Sterling could get more luck against Scotland than perhaps they did against Croatia. Um, and one last one for them, I mean, John McGinn is really important in terms of pressuring and harrying midfield. Um, he applied pressure 24 times uh, against the Czechs and on 12 of those, Scotland won the ball back within five seconds. So he's someone who has a lot of energy. He's a, he's a pain to play against because he's just constantly harrying you and looking to win it back. Um, and I think, you know, controlling that and being able to move the ball away from McGinn as soon as you want it in transition is going to be really, really important. So watch out for him scuttling around the pitch uh, on Friday night. So that's Tom Orville, the football analytics writer. On yesterday's England Show uh, podcast, the Athletics Scotland writers, Jordan Campbell and Kieran Devlin, said that a change in approach and personnel is needed. Uh, David, if you if you look at Scotland and, and talking to, to some of their fans and talking to play, former players and pundits and so on and so forth, that the clamour, very similar to England and, and Jack Grealish going into the tournament, but the clamour is all around Billy Gilmore. Yeah, I'd love to see him play more and let go free in a way. It may be say a tournament too early for him or whatever, but the quality is there. He showed it in what the final half hour in Scotland's final warm-up game that he offers something that Scotland just don't have. And if they're going to throw caution to the wind, then you imagine he's the sort of player that 
could come into the side and be really effective. He's also used to playing with and against some of the players that he would come up against at Wembley. And it was something I spoke about quite a lot before the tournament. I, I could see him being one of the tournament's standout performers, a, a bit of a sort of surprise package, but he needs to be given the opportunity. And I, I was thinking similar about Shea Adams. I was surprised and disappointed that he didn't start the first game. He scored Scotland's last goal um, in their warm-up matches. And it's unfair on me because I haven't studied enough how, how Steve Clark approaches his sort of team selection and tactics. I don't know. I was at the England uh, Scotland-England game in the World Cup qualifiers in 2018 at Hamden. And I think it was Lee Griffiths who scored two almost identical free kicks to put them up. England came back at the end. And, and that day he said to me that Scotland is just desperate for something special, a bit of a spark. When they play with sort of attritional, reliable players... It, it does a job, but it doesn't do anything to take them up to that next level. I think Billy Gilmore can take them to that next level. The likes of Shay Adams as well. And I'd love to see Gilmore given his wings, so to speak. I think the other thing with Gilmore is that if he comes into the midfield, it might mean they can do something different. Lindsay with, with Scott McTominay, they might they, they could play him in a back three where he's played for, for Scotland uh, before, particularly if they're still struggling with no Kieran Tierney. I think quite a lot of the decisions will come down to to what they can get out of Kieran Tierney, if anything. Yeah, and, and he will make a huge difference if he is fit and able to play. But McTominay has got that versatility and I think maybe playing with him in defence is a good option for this game. I also think, just to pick up on what David was saying about Shea Adam, that he provides a different outlet ball for Scotland. He's got really good ability at holding the ball up and laying it off. And although I think sometimes his finishing can be a bit questionable... I honestly think that he should be a starter for this game for the Scots. Here's the final thing on Scotland, and and this is where if anybody Scottish is listening, it'll be like, oh, arrogant English. But is is there is there any way that England win all three games? And Scotland and Kieran actually said this in the pod that that Scotland beating Croatia might be Scotland's best bet. So, you know, all the other three teams beat each other, Jack. England win all three. That still still gives Scotland a chance. Yeah, I mean, the nature of the of the format this time is that you can easily go through with three points, definitely go through with four points. So it's not as much of a must-win game for Scotland as you might think. I, you know, arguably Scotland's most best approach might be to conserve a bit of energy and focus on beating a pretty tired and old Croatia team in that third game back at Hampton rather than go, going all out to, in the game tomorrow. We're being way too breezy, you know, if you think that England are just going to go three points, three points, three points. Did anyone else watch the Czech Republic? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Did anyone else watch? I mean, I think they have a real attacking threat and one that England will struggle to cope with. I honestly do think that will be a huge, huge test. But it might be the position whereby there will be rotation and we don't see the true reflection of what our strongest 11 versus their strongest 11 would look like. But I expect to beat Scotland. I do. Off the back of their performance and then seeing ours, I, I just think that there is too much. Uh, there's too much between these two. And I, I'm thinking, you know, 2-0. And it might be that both of those goals come in the first half and then we sit back and be comfortable. At the risk of sounding like Edward II, I expect England to beat Scotland comfortably. I just think we're a much better team. With, <laughs> I just think that England are a much better team with better players in every position. And England played very well against Croatia and there's plenty more to come. England can rotate the team and improve. 
And yeah, I think I think that will be enough on the day. It's all well and good us sounding confident on behalf of England and the words coming back to haunt us and everybody replaying these clips as some sort of uh, embarrassing montage. Yeah. Jack, what do you think within the camp in terms of <laughs> complacency and overconfidence? It's certainly not a trait we've associated with Southgate's teams. I, yeah, I agree. And I also don't think that, I don't think that England are thinking about it too much in the context of England, Scotland, the history, your 96, all that kind of stuff. I was on the Marcus Rashford press conference call yesterday. And as always in these situations, he was asked about, you know, who's going to be the Gaza this time? Who's it going to be like Euro 96? All that sort of thing. And, and Rashford's response was, you know, we just want to win the game. You know, obviously we, they know it's a big game for lots of people and for lots of, and for all those reasons. But I don't think, I don't feel like England are going to play. I don't think those England players are going to play the occasion. I think they're just going to play the game. Jack, I'm laughing at that because I think there is one person in that team that is referring back to Euro 96 and he's just dyed his hair blonde. <laughs> but I think, I think Phil Foden might have another idea. I wonder what kind of occasion it's going to be. Having been at Wembley on on whatever day it was for, for the Sunday for, for the first game, Yeah, it did... It felt subdued going into Wembley on Sunday. And I think that's because everybody was still thinking about what had happened to Christian Eriksen the evening before. And that was there was that was the topic of conversation. And it felt subdued up till kickoff, partly because everybody is so spaced out in this in this cavernous stadium. So I I wonder there will be there will be an atmosphere and occasion of of sorts, Jack, but it, it won't it won't be the occasion of a Euro 96 or even a World Cup qualifier with 80 80 or 1,000 in there. I mean, there'll be noise and everything, but I'm not sure it'll be hairs on the back of your neck noise for anybody there. It depends what you're comparing it to. Like, if you're comparing it to England, Scotland, Euro 96, no, it won't, because there'll only be a a quarter as many people for that game as there would have been then. But if you compare it to, like, literally anything that's happened over the last 18 months, it will feel like that. Like, that's how I felt about the atmosphere in the Croatia game, is, like, maybe this isn't the best atmosphere you could ever have at Wembley, but it's the best atmosphere that anybody in this ground has experienced for years. And that alone gives it power, and that alone... You know, I think that that was certainly conveyed to the players in that first in that first thirty minutes. That's how it felt at the end of the game as well. So I don't feel I still feel like the atmosphere will have will have some force simply because there hasn't been any atmosphere at a football match since twenty nineteen. No, that that and, and I take that, but also um, it, that game at Wembley came off the back of the 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 test match at Edgebaston, and I didn't go to Edgebaston, but Edge, but what came through on the radio and television at Edgebaston. I, mind you, I heard more football songs at Edgebaston than I think I did at, uh, at Wembley. But Edgebaston was absolutely, I mean, and England were crap as well at Edgebaston, but Edge, Edgebaston was absolutely rocking for four days because it was 17,000 and, and full. I do think I do think spacing everybody out, which is what they have to do at Wembley because Edgebaston was a test event, maybe just brings that atmosphere down a little bit. Maybe I'm being grumpy, I don't know. I probably am. We do have one extra friend in the stadium, though, and that will be the rain. Well, interestingly, the producer of this show is just, you know, occasionally you get past a note whilst doing this, doing the show, and you look for expertise from your producer every now and then, Lindsay, and the note he's giving me is, it will be pissing down. That's my analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, move on to the piece that you've written on, on Raheem Sterling, uh, Jack. What's your... What's your biggest takeaway from that? I just think it's about this huge kind of disconnect that exists between the greater public's perception of Sterling, which is someone who shouldn't be in the team, really, 
and the incredible loyalty that Southgate has to Sterling. You know, Southgate picks Sterling almost every game, like every competitive game that he's fit for. Sterling plays, and you could see, you could see this in the course of an interview after the game on Sunday, where. Uh, Sterling was asked whether or not he justified his selection. And you could tell how offended he was by the suggestion that he shouldn't have been in the team. Um, I mean, clearly Sterling is someone who has a very clear sense of his own value and his own worth. And I think that's really been the story of his career from moving to Liverpool early on, leaving Liverpool to go to City, uh, changing, changing representation recently, not signing a new contract at City. You know, he's someone who wants to be in control of his own destiny. I can see why he would feel a little bit put out that lots of the great English public don't really rate him as a footballer. I got some really interesting insight into Sterling from Tony Adams this week, who it was put to him, one England player from the current squad that you think is world class. And everyone's thinking he's going to say Kane. And he said, Sterling. Immediately my eyes widened because I thought, oh, that's interesting. And he said... When you are a defender, you realise what Sterling has. That's the viewpoint that he has. When he's watching Sterling, he's watching, remembering being a centre-back, remember playing and remembering what a nightmare he would be to deal with. And I thought that was really an interesting point because sometimes maybe we watch too collectively and if you actually view through the eyes of the opposition for a second, then that goes with all the players. But, you know, Sterling is a handful, isn't he? And maybe he deserves a lot more than, than what I think this English public give him at the minute. It wasn't until our sort of collective force led by Lindsay in, in favour of Sterling selection this time last week that it really dawned on me how important and influential he is to this England team, um, irrespective of that club form. And there are a lot of reasons behind that, which he actually hinted at in, in a couple of his interviews. He's, despite his age, a sort of senior statesman of this England squad. A lot of those players look up to him. A lot of the younger players hold him up as a bit of a role model. He's vice captain. He is incredibly well respected. And this despite incidents like the Joe Gomez scrap that was a huge story at the time. This feels like it's Raheem Sterling's moment. I think it's inconceivable that he didn't start that first game, that he doesn't start against Scotland. He's a pillar of this team and there would have to be something drastically wrong with his performance for him to lose out. And that's no disrespect to the players that the public are clamouring for, the likes of Jack Grealish and Jadon Sancho, all of whom deserve a place or some minutes, but there is no way that Raheem Sterling is not leading this team forward. I think it would be a, a real problem if he was dropped from this team, not in terms of him sort of kicking off or something, but just in terms of the chemistry. He expects to be playing, they expect him to be playing, and there's no reason for him not to be. Does what's happened at Manchester City this season affect him at all, Jack? Well, it means he's coming in, in in worse form, you know, having obviously lost his place for City. That said, Southgate doesn't really... I think Southgate does like to pick on England form as, at least as much as club form. Sterling hasn't let Southgate down in an England shirt. You know, Sterling has been... Throughout the Southgate era, Sterling has been the second top scorer uh, through those games, been the second top scorer if you just look at competitive goals as well ahead of Marcus Rashford in third place. You might argue that it means that Sterling is maybe has a bit less confidence right now. On the other hand, you could argue that because he's played less football, he's less exhausted. Like clearly most footballers at this Euros are absolutely exhausted because they've been playing non-stop football for 12 months. Uh, Sterling hasn't been playing every single game for City and maybe that means he'll be a bit fresher and sharper. Uh, David mentioned uh, the the clamour for Jack Grealish in amongst a few uh, other players. Uh, Dan Bardell, our co-host of this pod and our Villa 
Pod 1874. Is is I, I was going to say he's president of his fan club, but Micah Richards is president of the Jack Grealish fan club. So I think we're going to have to say Dan is vice president uh, of the uh, of the fan club. And here he is in conversation with the Athletics Villa writer Greg Evans about Grealish. Jack Grealish is looking for another, and it is seven. The captain gets his second. This is a day of dreams for Aston Villa. Greg, we're going to talk like we have done pretty much for the last two years about Jack Grealish. You've wrote about his shin injury on the Athletic. What's the latest with his fitness? Yeah, well, it's my understanding, Dan, that he's um, he's not he's not injured. You know, he's available to play. Um, it's just a case of we all know that he's got this shin injury, and it's just a case of England monitoring it. Really, you know, Villa have told England the the situation, how to how to monitor him throughout the tournament. Some of the training sessions he might have to cut a little bit short, uh, and some training sessions he might have to just do individual work, and that's just the case to to, to ensure that there's no further flare ups. So this isn't unusual. It's it's a bit the same thing would have been happening happening at Villa when he got back into the team, got fit again. He'd have probably missed days here and there at Villa as well. So it's it, it's nothing unusual. It's business as usual as far as Jack Grealish is concerned. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Look, we, we've heard both Dean Smith and Gareth Southgate say that that, that Grealish is you know a little bit fragile at times, isn't he? And and they don't want to aggravate this issue really. So you know, providing there's a there's a, um, enough care taken over you know over the course of the the day-to-day running of things, then, you know, hopefully he'll be all right. So it's, it's my understanding that he'll be available for, for the Scotland game. Um, whether he plays or starts or features is obviously another matter. Well, that was going to be my next question, Greg. What what do you think? Do you, what's your opinion? I mean, I, to be honest, I can't get away from the guy I've been doing Villa pods for two years on him and then I've come on the, the England podcast for the Athletic and it feels like every podcast, someone brings up Jack Grealish or we end up talking about Jack Grealish. He, he's just box office. What do you think going into the Scotland game? I mean, that that is the best way to describe him, isn't he? Box office. I mean, you know, for me, he's like the closest thing to David Beckham was, you know, when when he was an England player, he's, you know, it's it's his looks, his style, his personality, you know, the way that he can um, excite supporters. Um, And there is a real clamour for him, isn't there? You know, we've seen um, up and down the country that that supporters in pubs and bars and fan parks and obviously inside Wembley as well are cheering his name. They all want to see him playing because... you know how well he's played in an England shirt previously I think I I, I mean me and you look at we've been talking about we want Jack Grealish to play haven't we for for months years for England but uh, having watched England on Sunday I'm a little bit more relaxed with him being on the bench to be honest because I think that England did very well and my my, um, thoughts are if England continue winning I don't really care who plays to be honest and having Jack Grealish on the bench as an option to turn to if it's not going well he's great and then maybe if he comes on and does something then he might start the next game so that's just my take on it Yeah he was probably minutes away from actually coming on at Wembley on Sunday I think if Sterling hadn't scored when he did I think Grealish would have been on to try and turn the game and that that could well be his role against Scotland as well like you say he's a brilliant option for England to have on the bench Yeah and there are quite a few options aren't there you know um, there was a message that was relayed back to me um, from an insider you know with knowledge said that the Romania game, there were some issues. Um, Southgate was a little bit concerned with some of the players for not pressing effectively and 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 as often as maybe they should have been. And 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 two of the players that were singled out, my understanding again, were, were Grealish and and Marcus Rashford. So okay. p- potentially, you know, the reasons maybe why why they didn't start the last game that might have been one of the reasons. And then if you look at um, 
Um, if you look at Mark Carey's uh, story in The Athletic about how effective England were with their pressing, it shows that Southgate got the players in there that he wanted because they pressed so well and, and at times even more harder than um, Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds United, who we know are the, the pressing machine, so to speak. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. But, you know, I think that it's, I think, look, Greece is going to feature, isn't he? he? There's no way he can come to this tournament and not feature. Um, he will be extremely frustrated if he doesn't, because we all know um, how frustrated he was in the Euros, the under 21 Euros in, in 2017. And I think he was the only player, wasn't he, who didn't get on. Um, and, and, and that was really frustrating for him. Yeah, you've mentioned Mark Carey's pace there and we've talked about your pace about, about Jack Grealish and his, and his injury on The Athletic as well. If you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, then you can do it at the moment for our best ever price. All you've got to do is go to theathletic.com slash Pod, and you'll be able to sign up for just a pound a month. So it, as I say, if you're not already subscribed, go and check that out because it really is a fantastic offer. What do you make of Jack's relationship with Gareth Southgate, Greg? Because I think some of the Villa fans and perhaps people from the outside kind of look at it as being a bit strained, but I don't really think that that's the case at all. I think they've got an enormous amount of respect for each other. Yeah, I think I think there is a, a mutual respect there for each other. I mean, look, you know, let's not get it twisted. Jack Grealish isn't going to be taking um, Gareth Southgate out for a pint in in Mayfair when when England win the Euros, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure Southgate won't want to share a sparkling water or so with with Grealish in such an environment anyway, but. It's a player and manager thing, isn't it? You know, this is what players and managers, you know, in modern football are like. They 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 have a mutual respect, and that's it, really. When when they're away from football, you know, they they, they don't really socialise or talk to each other. So Jack Grealish will know, as as will any of the other players, that if they if he performs and does what is asked of him, then more often than not, he's going to play. So yeah, I, I don't think there's an issue there. Do you think the clamour for his inclusion will continue? Is it, it's nice to hear England fans singing his name, although it is a bit weird hearing the Super Jackie Grealish chant without a Brummie accent. But, it, you know, England fans want him in the team in the main, don't they? I just think, Dan, because he's so exciting, isn't he? And, and what we've seen him do, uh, you know, even against real elite teams like Belgium, I think England supporters up and down the country have seen that and, and they want to see more of it. As good as it was to beat Croatia 1-0 the actual performance wasn't that exciting, was it? And you feel that if Grealish was a part of that team, then it just could be a little bit more, um, you know, there could be a little bit more going forward. So uh, I think until until we see him, until we see him in action, there's going to be that clamour for him. What I thought was interesting earlier this week, uh, Lindsay, was that Grealish was put up for, for the radio interviews. And I think in previous England camps, not under Southgate, the guy that the public all want in, I think, and who wasn't being selected, would be kept out of the spotlight so it wouldn't fan the flames. But England have no, don't seem to have any problem with that. And Grealish was also very open about obviously wanting to play. Yeah, and I think that's something that we should really embrace. I mean, it was Luke Shaw yeah. as well who was the yeah. other player that was put up, wasn't it, this week? And and I and I thought that was testament actually to the fact that. There's a real trust and belief in these players that they're not going to then say the wrong thing or or over overstep the mark too much. All we're getting is that raw passion, isn't it? That you know he really wants to be part of it, but uh, you know they're looking for, out for each other more, and I, and I do really pick up on that. I think Grealish will get minutes against Scotland. I don't know whether he'll start. I don't know whether David or Jack think that he's in contention to start over Sterling now. I, I still think he'll probably start with Sterling, but I do think that 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 front three that are behind Kane 
need to be mixed up a little bit because of the exhaustion, Jack, that you picked up on. I, I could sense that with Mount. I could sense a bit of it with Foden, actually. Yeah, I think I think that if Grealish were to come in, I think it's more likely he'd probably come in for Foden than Sterling, just because you can't really not have Sterling in the team, given what he offers, whereas Grealish is probably maybe slightly more similar to Foden's style. I also thought Foden... Foden looked like he was running himself into the ground in that first game against Croatia. Uh, you know, he got hooked in the second half. He looked he looked pretty tired. And so I just wonder whether it might make more sense, if Grealish is fit enough, uh, for Grealish to come into Foden and keep Sterling in the team. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree with that. I think we talked in the first pod about needing a sort of guy that can run in behind, which no one can do like Sterling, to be honest, and a creative guy. He opted for Foden. Part of me thought, having played more minutes than I think pretty much anyone else in the two warm-up matches, 71 and 90, that he might have stuck with Grealish for the creativity berth. But Foden worked out well. I also think bringing Foden out of the team now won't cause much controversy. I think the player will be understanding of it. He's still very, very early in his career and bringing Grealish in wouldn't be like a major surprise or controversy. Uh, however, I don't think it will happen. I think there are legitimate fitness concerns over Jack Grealish. Now, I don't think it's the sort of thing that we should worry about for the entire tournament, but he's clearly having to nurse this shin problem through training sessions and post-match. And it gives Gareth Southgate a reason, not that he's sort of looking for a reason, but a, a legitimate reason to maybe favour somebody else from the start. And and I, I think, push come to shove, he, he probably will. Now, this clamour in the public is really interesting because it's pretty vociferous. When we broke news of the expected team on Sunday morning ahead of the game, there was um, some really um, sort of fierce... It was vitriol, wasn't there, it? There was vitriol, was vitriol. there was fierce criticism yeah. for Southgate in terms of Trippier at left-back, in terms of a um, um, bit of maybe Mings at centre-half, but especially in terms of Grealish being left out. But what Southgate's showing here, and it worked against Croatia, is that he's got the courage of his convictions. He's not going to be um, cowed by public scrutiny. And uh, and he will make the tough calls. And I think I sense a little bit of a softening, maybe not on certain parts of social media, but it's worked once and you have to back the manager with his judgments again. Having been at the fan zone in Trafalgar Square for that England game, the contrast in comment prior to the game kicking off and at the full-time whistle across the board was incomprehensible. I could not believe how many people ditched all their values so quickly because they, they had been really out there to say, he has got this wrong. Right, this is what they're saying. That's the polite and then at the version. Full-time whistle. Yeah, that's the polite version. That's the PG bit, but... You know, he then turns around um, a few, I'm saying he, I'm thinking of a fan in particular, at the end and said, needs to stick with the same same 11 for next time. <laughs> Just one final thing on, on Grealish. A Villa really lay in the ground for him leaving this summer? David, or are they just trying to strengthen their squad and give them other options? This is such an interesting situation because... Um, Everybody you speak to at and around Villa, very clear that they want to build with Jack Grealish and that this investment in the squad is to play alongside him. And I think the vision is genuinely a three-pronged forward line of Grealish to the left, Emi Buendia to the right. And you're referring to our revelation on The Athletic that they'd had a bid turned down for the Arsenal midfielder, Emile Smith-Rowe, in the middle 
all three of them behind Ollie Watkins at the top. Whether it's Smith Rowe or another player, it's very unlikely to be Smith Rowe because Arsenal won't let him go. And so Villa are ambitious. They've got wealthy owners. They're planning with him. And I know that they're planning with him. When they're they're talking to players, they're sort of saying, you're playing alongside him if you come to our club. However, the other side to it is it is possible that he could go if the if a, an, an enormous offer comes in. And then they've got really good options. So it kind of works either way. But I don't think these signings or approaches are being made to replace Jack Grealish. It might be an eventuality that comes before the end of the window. The one thing I'd say about Villa is their their ambition seems to be showing no bounds at the moment. So if they can get upgrades in any position, I think they're going to be quite ruthless about it. They're spending where others aren't. They are moving quicker than others are. And... I think this is a club that has ambitions to really upset the sort of top six apple cart, uh, whether it happens immediately or, or not. I do think it's going to be a possibility under this ownership and the sort of uh, executives they've got in place now, the structure, the management, the feel good factor around the club, the experience and youth uh, developments of the training ground. This, this is a Villa side only in two seasons up from, from the championship, but they're certainly upwardly mobile now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Right, uh, let's just uh, point out some of the great reading across The Athletic during the Euros. Jack, what stood out for you this week, apart from your own articles? Oli Kay again has another great piece uh, about Calvin Phillips' background, his family, and his grandmother, who I think passed away recently. Uh, yeah. And... Um, how much she meant to to Calvin Phillips. So if you want to know more about Calvin Phillips, and Adam Crafton also did a great bit on Calvin Phillips and how he became the player that he is last week. So if you want to learn more about Calvin Phillips, and my sense is that everybody does right now, then we've got a lot of good stuff. Actually, just going off tangent again, Lindsay, he strikes me as the player who could become the superstar out of this England squad from this tournament. Mm-hmm. If it, For two reasons. One, if he carries on as how he did in the first game, there'll be a lot of attention on him. Yeah. But the more you read about him, the more you hear from it. I mean, he is the nicest, nicest, politest lad. People are just going to fall in love with him. I was going to pick out that article as well. And and I'd spoken to Calvin earlier in the season in my work for the Premier League. And he'd he'd been speaking to me about his nan and about Val and and how technical she was and how she was the one that was on the iPad and, <laughs> and all these things. It is lovely when when you can sense that a player is just really family orientated. I think that came across brilliantly in the article and it shows you the the values that he has and the way he's been brought up. And I think if we can all buy into that with Calvin Phillips, then the whole country are going to be wanting him to be that player of the tournament, I think, because he, he really deserves it. He's worked very, very hard. 
my uh, BBC colleague John Murray interviewed him after the game on on Sunday, and Calvin Phillips kept thanking John for you know you know you've had a good game out there. Thank you, thank you. He's like, no, no, no. You need to uh, stop being so polite and answer the question. He was ju- he was just lovely. David article. Well, we all love John Murray, but uh, I'm going to go very different with my chosen article and say Jamie Vardy becoming an investor in the U.S. sports uh, football franchise, the Rochester Rhinos. Uh, he has become co-owner of a club that has fallen uh, quite spectacularly. They've been around for sort of 25 years or so. Uh, and he, in typical Jamie Vardy fashion, the underdog story, wants to bring them back from obscurity to a sort of MLS team and help them succeed. And that was written by Stu James, exclusive story and interview. Uh, it doesn't affect his career at Leicester. He's going to carry on playing, but he's also going to be a US club owner that is so classic Vardy all the articles on The Athletic now uh, you can read them for just £1 a month if you subscribe using this link theathletic.com slash England pod theathletic.com slash England pod sign up and you get The Athletic for just £1 a month now The Athletic did reveal uh, Gareth Southgate's England side for Croatia ahead of the official announcement. Uh, I don't know whether that was down to all our writers who had picked their starting 11s and Gareth had had listened and we just uh, fluked on one. Uh, But let's do your starting 11s for the Scotland game. No explainers, right, David? I don't want this taking five minutes like your last England 11 did. Uh, And this is what you would pick, not what Gareth would pick. Lindsay. Pickford in goal. Back four of Mings and Stones at centre-backs. Um, Shaw and Trippier, but Trippier in his right-back position. Um, Rice and Phillips, Grealish, Mount, Sterling and Kane. Okay, right. David? No reflection on anyone being left out, but I would like to see um, Pickford in goal, Rhys James given a run-out at right-back, uh, Stones and Mings with Ben Chilwell at left-back, Rice and Phillips, of course, with Mount in front of them. And then two sort of wide forwards being Sterling and Grealish in support of Kane. And on the right back, that was no disrespect to Carl Walker, who I love and I'd happily see in the team. Jack. Pickford, Walker, Stones, Mings, Shaw, Phillips, Rice, Grealish, Mount, Sterling Kane. I tell you what, when I give you a brief, Jack, you do follow it. I mean, I did say, just give me the players, no explanations, boom, and you're done. And you've you've done exactly that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, David. Jack will be back on Saturday alongside Dan and David Priest as well with all the reaction from the Scotland game. Bye for now. The Athletic.